Um, so, uh, yeah, I got to follow that. How about some John Calvin? Yeah. There's a. Uh, you remember when the when the Da Vinci Code uh, book and movie were out, and you had the character of the uh, the 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 albino. Actually, I think that's basically in all in, Dan, in all of Dan Brown's books. There's like an, an evil albino that get, gets introduced in the first chapter. Um, but you know he, that he he had the salicha. He had this this band that he would wrap around his leg that cut in that was like a a means of mortification. I saw a kind of a satirical version of that, uh, but instead of instead of uh, 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 disciplining himself with with a uh, um, with the salicha, you know, the thing that that you wrap around your leg that has like teeth that grind into your leg, uh, it was a reformed. Uh, pastor who would take down his volumes of John Calvin and read them. Um, it was funnier at the time. But, you know, Calvin, Calvin wrote a lot. Calvin, Calvin didn't um, have TV. And, uh, and he, he wrote a whole lot, and some of it's good and some of it's not, and some of it's great. And actually what he has to say about our text this morning really, really is good. He says, talking about this whole section of 1 Corinthians, he says, since it was a matter of grave concern for Paul to see that the church was torn into harmful factions in this way because of people's likes and dislikes, Paul begins to discuss the ministry of the Word still further. Three things are to be considered here in their order. First of all, Paul defines the office of a pastor of the church. Secondly, he shows that it's not enough for anyone to present a title or even venture on the work, but he must also be faithful in carrying out the duties of the office. Third, since the Corinthians' judgment of him was quite distorted, he calls both them and himself back to the judgment seat of Christ. First, then he shows the place that must be given to any teacher of the church. In dealing with this, he exercises restraint in what he is saying so that he does not throw over the dignity of the ministry or, on the other hand, make more of men than is justified. Both of these positions are extremely dangerous because contempt for the word is born of a downgrading of ministers, while on the other hand, if they are given far more importance than they deserve, ministers take advantage of their freedoms, do just as they like, working against the Lord. Now, Paul's moderation lies in him calling them ministers of Christ. In doing so, he means that they should not be attending to their own work, but to that of the Lord who has hired their services. And he also suggests that they have not been appointed to govern the church imperiously, but to be under the supreme power of Christ. In short, ministers are servants, not masters. Our text for today is chapter 4, 1 Corinthians, verses 6 and 7, but really it starts back in chapter 3, verse 21. It's important to realize what in Scripture is inspired and what is not. The, The headings are not inspired. The verse 
numbers and chapters are not inspired. They're helpful things that came along along the way so we can find stuff quickly and easily. But here's one of these places where switching from chapter 3 to chapter 4 actually, in a way, kind of runs over a portion of Paul's argument that, that holds together. Starting in verse 21, Paul says, So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries of God. Now it's required that those who have been given a trust prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. It will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit in order that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. And then you will not take pride in one man over another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This problem with boasting shows up in verse chapter 4, verse 7, and shows up in chapter 3, verse 21. The scholars call this an inclusio, bookends to this section of Paul's arguments where he starts with boasting and ends with boasting. This is a problem. As we've been discussing in our study of 1 Corinthians, the problem in the church at Corinth is, among other things, that the church is divided. You have divisions, you have factions in the church. And you have factions in the church because people have picked their favorite teachers, their favorite leaders, and have decided they're, they're going to follow them and they're going to identify with them over against, and in a sense over, people who identify with other teachers. So you have people who are saying, well, I'm on team Apollos, and other people saying, well, I'm on team Paul, and my apostle can beat up your apostle. You have other people saying, well, I'm on team Cephas, I'm on team Peter, he was the original apostle after all. Other people are saying, I'm on team Jesus, I don't know what your problem is. The problem is that this has led to division in the church, and you've got people, instead of receiving with gratitude the teachings that these various teachers have to bring, you have people devoting themselves to those teachers and not to Christ. And so, in addition to boasting, what we find in chapter 4, verse 1, is that people are failing to regard these ministers, failing to regard Paul and Apollos as servants of Christ. They're thinking of them as powers in their own right, as leaders, figures worthy of, worthy of devotion, worthy of following in and of themselves, not 
because they point people to Christ. And they're regarding them as teachers, people who have their own wisdom to bring, people who have something special to offer, not as those entrusted with the mysteries of God. Paul's saying, look, we, Apollos and I, we're, we're simply conveying what it is that God has to give His church. We're, we're not making any of this up. We don't get any credit for teaching you the things that God has revealed to us. But unfortunately, because people have done this, they have become judges. They have become expert, sophisticated tasters of apostolic teaching. They've made their assessments as to who gets five stars in the Yelp review of the Corinthian church. Paul says, look, I've I got to be honest, I really don't care what you think. Seriously. I think about my dear, beloved wife, Mary, um, who is always so gracious and patient. When I met Mary, she was playing oboe at Grace Fellowship Church on the, on the worship team. And, um, and I learned about so many different instruments um, after the services because people would come up and say, I love the way you play the horn. I love you play, the way you play that trumpet. I love the way you play the, the, the uh, flute. And it was always the oboe, but not everybody knew. But the fact is, when people came up and told her that she played well, that was a good reflection on them. Because she did, and she knew it. Right? Um, if somebody didn't think she played well, she really wouldn't care. Because she knew better. And Paul, in much the same way as my dear beloved wife Mary knows that, in a sense, the assessment of the assessor has more to say about the assessor than about the one being assessed. In other words, if you're trying to judge whether Paul or Apollos is a better teacher, that says more about you than it does about either Paul or Apollos. In fact, Paul says, you know, I I can think well of myself. My conscience can be clear, but none of that matters. What you think of me doesn't matter. What she thinks of me doesn't matter. What I think of myself doesn't matter because the only opinion, who's, the only opinion that matters is that of Christ because I work for Him. I don't work for you. I don't work for myself. I work for Christ. Just like Apollos, both of us are servants of Christ. We're stewards. We've been given a responsibility to teach the mysteries of God to His people. And so, in discharging that responsibility, frankly, whether you like that or not is is not at all our concern. What matters is what Jesus thinks of what we're doing. So, you shouldn't be judging things before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. That's a reference to what He was talking about in the previous chapter when he says, look, everybody's work is going to be tested. And there, as you remember, he's not talking about purgatory. He's talking about the work of everybody who's contributing to the building of the church. That's ultimately going to be tested. And Paul says, look, eventually we're going to find out if you really care 
who was a more effective teacher, Paul or Apollos. But, but for now, that's not your concern. Wait till the Lord comes. Wait till He gives His grade. He's going to bring to light what's hidden in darkness. He'll expose the motives of men's hearts. The implication being the motives of your hearts, Corinthians, are not going to look very good in that light. And each will receive the praise from God, which is the only praise that matters. And so, Paul says, with a dig at these sophisticated Corinthians, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. It's easy to miss for us, but Paul is speaking to a group of people, writing to a group of people that see themselves as very uh, advanced judges of rhetorical arts. That's one of the reasons they're disappointed in Paul is that he's, his rhetoric is not sufficiently advanced. He's not showing off like he should. They kind of like the way Apollos brings the word And so for Paul to say, now I have applied these things to myself, and Apollos is basically Paul giving like a very elementary lesson in rhetoric. He's like, so here's what I'm doing rhetorically. I'm applying this to Paul and Apollos for my benefit. You get it? See? <clears throat> Again, it would be kind of like telling Mary, now this is a French horn, and this is an English horn, and they don't look like each other, and they don't sound like each other. And I've done this so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. One of the great things about my job, about what I get to do, is I, I get to run across things in Scripture and go, huh, I wonder what that means. And I go to my library and I take out a huge stack of books and I read through them. And I find out that the scholarly consensus is, huh, I don't know what that means. Nobody knows what do not go what beyond what is written is about. There are all kinds of clever theories. Some people say that this is actually a, a little note that a copyist put in way back when about a, a, a correction he made. Some people say that what Paul's talking about here is what he has written beforehand in the letter. Uh, you don't go beyond what is written in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 4, 5. Some people say that Paul's referring to the Old Testament passages that he's cited before that in this letter. Others say he's referring to the whole of the Old Testament. Others saying he's referring to the, the core of the gospel message that has been brought. Uh, other people say he's just kind of using a, a common statement, a common maxim or axiom that people would have known the saying, do not go beyond what is written. is sort of a common piece of wisdom that he could appeal to. It could be some combination of the above, but, I, but, but even if we don't know exactly what that which is written refers to, we can understand the point Paul's trying to make, which is we are accountable to what has been revealed to us, right? What, what did Paul say? We are servants of Christ. We've been entrusted. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. So our job is not to improve upon those mysteries. Our job is not to take those mysteries and develop them so that they're more congenial 
to the time in which we live. Our job is not to take what God has revealed and make some edits according to what we see fit. You know, Titus, uh, Paul says in his letter to Titus, Titus, one of, his, uh, one of his young disciples, young lieutenants, he says to, to, to Titus, he says, as for the gospel, I want you to stress these truths of the gospel so that those who've trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what's good. You know, these things are, are excellent. They're profitable for everyone, but, but steer clear of foolish controversies genealogies, arguments, quarrels about little points of the law, because these are unprofitable and they're useless. In other words, there are things you can do with what God has revealed that are useless, that are not going to do you any good, especially if you use them as grounds for division. Grounds for separating yourself from others, making yourself feel superior to others. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to figure out how you reconcile the genealogies in the books of Kings and the ones in Chronicles. That's kind of interesting and fun to do if you're into that sort of thing. But, but if, if you're doing that in a way that you say, well, I follow the school of this scholar who said this, and that makes me better than you, then you've completely missed the point. And I can tell you, having been to a whole lot of theological conferences, this is not unknown. No, Paul says, and he's so serious about this, this is, Paul's serious as cancer. He says, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time and after that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. Paul has absolutely no time for anybody who wants to divide the church over things that are not important. But at the same time, he does recognize the importance of distinguishing between what is and is not true. In his letter, second letter to Timothy, another one of his lieutenants, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. There's always a market, Paul says. Always a market for people who will tell you what you want to hear. Always a market for people who will tell you what you want to hear. Probably a good rule in general. If you're sitting under somebody's teaching and you like everything they say, then you probably should be a little concerned about that. There's always going to be people who will turn away from the truth, turn aside to myths. Why? Because they're filling their ears 
with what they want to hear. And they haven't had any trouble finding somebody who will take their money to do that. And in Second John, our house church this spring went through all the one-chapter books of the Bible because uh, literacy is an issue for us. So we want to go with really short, short uh, books. And I was so struck in Second John by the fact that this this phenomenon was certainly going on in the early church, and and it's not just Paul talking about it. You know, some people have the idea that Paul that that. Christianity as we know it really came from Paul. And if we could just kind of put this annoying rabbi to the side for a while and read some of the other writers of the New Testament, um, then we, we'd have a much mellower form of Christianity, and that, that would be much cooler. But, but w- w- look what John says. He, he's writing uh, to the chosen lady, and we don't know if he's writing to an actual woman or if the chosen lady is a euphemism for this church that he's writing to, but he says it's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Evidently, he has encountered either this lady's children or people who have come from this church. So someday, some pastor in Garrett County will have Mark and Kendall come along and say, it's given me great joy to find your children, you know, bumbling around and doing the stuff they do. It's going to be great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. And now, my dear lady, I'm writing you not a new commandment. I'm writing you one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to Christ's commands. As you've heard from the beginning, His command is that you walk in love. Now, here's the problem. Many deceivers, deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. So not only have your faithful and obedient children gone out into the world, these deceivers, people who are teaching a false doctrine about Christ, people who are denying His full humanity, they've gone out into the world. And any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you don't lose what you've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. But whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This word that God has given His ministers to preach that he's given us to be stewards of is not something that is ours to improve on as we see fit. It is not ours to update. It is not ours to edit. It is not ours to buff up and polish. It is ours to steward. Insofar as we continue in the teaching, we have the Father and the Son. Insofar as we run on ahead of what God has given us. We don't have God. All we got is ourselves. All we have is what little things we have to offer. And the problem specifically in Corinth is I think not that there's heretical false teaching coming out of Paul or Apollos, but nowhere does Paul indicate that Apollos is teaching 
folks in Corinth something wrong, or even that, that Peter is. The problem is that people are adhering to certain teachers rather than to the message that they share in common. And because of that, they are susceptible to being puffed up. Your translation may say you may not take pride in one man over another, but literally it's you will not be blown up, you will not be puffed up by identifying with one party over against another one. Because after all, Paul says, you're not that special. Right? I'm not that special. Apollos isn't that special. You're no different from anybody else. Whatever you have that's any good, it was given to you. You didn't, you didn't figure it out yourself. You didn't find it yourself. You didn't develop this yourself. What you have that's worthwhile is something that you received. And whether you received it from Paul or from Apollos doesn't matter. It's, the, it's good stuff that you have. But remember, you received it. And if you received it, then why on earth are you bragging like it's not something that was given to you? Why are you bragging like it's something that's yours? Now, if we're going to boast, Paul says elsewhere, we're going to boast in Christ. We can do that all day long and we won't be in any trouble whatsoever, but if we are boasting in people, if we're adhering to certain teachers, denying the core truth of what all Orthodox teachers have to bring, then we place ourselves in danger of sliding into the position of paying folk to teach us what our itching ears want to hear. We threaten to divide the church over things that are not important. We threaten to devote ourselves not to what God has given us, but to something else beyond that. Our call is to be faithful to the mysteries that God has revealed. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the ministers of New Hope Community Church, our pastors, our elders, our house church leaders, those who teach from this pulpit, pray that we would always be found faithful to the trust you've given us. That we would always first of all, regard ourselves as servants of Christ and that we would be so regarded. Pray that we would never take lightly what you have given us. Pray that you would guard us from the temptation of saying things that are more palatable than what you have revealed Keep us from the temptation to say things that are more interesting to us at a given time than what you've revealed. Give us the courage to preach and to teach the word you've given us, fearing nothing but you. And I ask this in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.